Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Rebecca Rosenberg's fascination with women who challenge convention has led her to write two historical novels celebrating glorious women of the past. Charmian London, the unsung collaborator of writer Jack London's work, and Baby Doe Tabor, once the richest woman in America. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Rebecca talks about losing everything in last year's California fires, how writing helped her pull through the disaster, and her latest project, the story of the five remarkable widows who created champagne. Yes, that's right, Bubbles the Drink. But before we get to Rebecca, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Rebecca's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review so others can find us too. Now, here's Rebecca. Hello there, Rebecca, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. I'm so excited to be here. I can't believe you're all the way in Auckland and I'm in California. That's amazing. I know, and not just in California, but on a lavender farm in California. That conjures up all sorts of wonderful images for me. And I'm just wondering, what stage are you at with the farm at the moment? Are the bushes in bloom at the moment? Okay, so this is a crazy story, but our house and the entire farm burnt down in those big California fires. <gasps> oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, but the good part, so that was pretty devastating. We have five acres of lavender and we have a beautiful big lavender painted barn or we used to have, but every single thing burnt to the ground, everything. And our house was actually made out of brick and tile and stone. So it even it is down to the ground. But the good news is that we are replanting this month. So I am so excited and I am going to share pictures of that because it's, it's just thrilling to be planting the lavender again. My goodness, I didn't pick up on that on your blog or whatever. I, I can't have been looking closely enough, but that's a big thing to go through, isn't it? It it has been a crazy year. I've lived in five rental houses and it's been a lot, but we're, you know, at this point, the house will be finished in September and our lavender field is going to take a whole new shape. I'm so excited. Instead of regular rows, we're doing concentric circles. Oh, gorgeous. Can you believe that? So it's going to be fun to you know, try something new. You probably haven't had much time to devote to your books, but turning to the writing, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? The catalyst was that my girlfriend and I decided, let's see, that was about 12 years ago, we decided that we would write novels together. 
And actually, this book that's coming out this month, Gold Digger, The Remarkable Baby Doe Tabor, that was the book that I started writing 12 years ago. And it was a fun thing that we did. We would meet every week and read our scenes and just start. We just started that way. And then I got hooked on it and started taking all sorts of writing classes and going away for a week and in these workshops. And I just really loved writing. It came at a really good time in my life. And so I just continued and I wrote Gold Digger for many years. And then I decided that I needed more professional help. And I went to Stanford University for a two-year program. And that's actually where I wrote The Secret Life of Mrs. London. And that one got picked up first by a publisher. So that's kind of how it went. Fantastic. And so you have got two books with two very interesting women, Jack London's wife, Charmaine. And that's I think it's based on quite a lot of real history about the triangle between Jack London, his wife, and Harry Houdini. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. So I started writing that book because our lavender farm is right across from the London's, Jack London's beautiful beauty ranch. He called it beauty ranch and it's a thousand acre ranch. So it's quite something. And so for 30 years, really, I have been hiking all over that ranch and seeing all the mysteries that lie there because they're big, beautiful lodge of a home, like a 12,000 square foot home was burnt to the ground before they even moved in. So it has a lot of character and I just became really enamored with Charmian Kittredge London who was in the 1900s, she was believed in free love and she was a worker. She worked all her life. She had her own money. She was a writer. And she really, I discovered, was how Jack, he wrote 50 books in 15 years. And you know that that's pretty much impossible. I can't even understand how he did it. And they were all quite involved and very interesting. Well, he did it, I discovered, because Charmian London would listen to his stories. So he would just dictate his stories, telling her a story, and she would type them up for him. And then she would spend the rest of the day editing them and working on them. So I feel like she was the unsung hero of Jack London's work. And I just really wanted to tell that story. Sure. Um, I I read somewhere that at the stage where your book is opening, but at the stage that they went back to that ranch, he was fairly broken in health and frayed in spirit. And they had that disastrous fire there. They had just about completed a new home, which I think was putting him into quite a bit of financial stress, and it burned down. So the house that's there now, is that a different house? So there, I told you it's a thousand acres. So they have a small cottage that they lived in and that is still there. It's a cute little Victorian farm cottage. And you can still see where they slept on their sleeping porches outside. They had two separate sleeping porches and they had small offices inside and it was quite small, but cozy. And it has a beautiful garden outside. 
and they have the big Shire horse barns made out of stone, but they were building about a mile away. You can hike there still and see the whole ruins. They were building this 12,000 square foot amazing stone um, and log home. And yes, they had been building it for two or three years. I am trying to remember, I guess it was three years and they were just about to move in and it went up in flames. And at the time, they did not know how it, you know, why, how it burned down because it was at night. And there were several theories that are in the book. And that's part of the mystery of the book. And Houdini, of course, can't let it go. Yeah. So he has, he has to figure out how the house burned kind of fun yeah it sounds like a lot of fun and that property is now part of a national park is it so anybody can go and visit anyone can go visit but it's actually its own privately owned park because when california lost all of its money for parks the locals decided that they would buy that park and they run it themselves and it's it's like so beautiful and i really recommend that anyone go there and you see all sorts of exciting things. Like Jack London was wild about this ranch. He loved it so much. And he built a pig palace and it's still there. He had, it's still there. It has this beautiful turret in the center and all the little pig hobbles are around. And you can just imagine how inventive and kind of crazy he was. In fact, I really think he was bipolar because he would be really manic in these very exciting things that he did on the ranch. Like he bought 300,000 eucalyptus trees from Australia and brought them and planted them all over California, but all over his ranch as well. He just got very manic about doing certain things and Charmian supported him. And as you alluded to, that was part of the reason that he had to keep writing so much because he was obsessed with this beauty ranch. Um, we should mention while we're on this book that it's just recently been named in, as a gold finalist in quite a big um, indie, not indie perhaps, but pu publishing um, competition, hasn't it? Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm going to New York on uh, May 28th and collecting the Gold Ippy Award, it's called. And that is the world's largest um, book competition. So I'm just amazed and excited to do that. <laughs> so much fun. You have every right to be proud of that. That's fantastic. And the one that you've got coming out just in a, in a few weeks is the baby doe story. And that's another scandalous and rags to riches type of story. And I think that's one you've grown up with. As you say, it was the first thing you were attracted to writing about. Tell us about baby doe. Okay. I grew up in Colorado and we would go camping in the mountains and we would go in the ghost towns and we would um, pan for gold in the rivers and I found out about this baby Doe Tabor who was 20 years old when she came west. And this is strange, but she came west because everything that her family had burned in a fire. 
So now, isn't that strange? It is strange. Honestly, <laughs> so weird that her, all of Baby Doe's things burnt in a fire and all of Jack London's things and then my house burning in a fire. I think I have to get off this kick somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she married someone just to uh, bring her parents money. So she would send money back from the gold mine. And this young man that she married, another 20-year-old, turned out to be not cut out for this mining, which is really difficult. You find all that out in the book, is how what it's really like to work in a mine and how mining changed from this beautiful thing of panning for gold in the river to hard rock mining when you're three stories underground and you can't breathe and it's dusty and it's dark and you're dynamiting for this gold, it turns into quite a tough thing. And so he was not up to that and baby Doe took over the mine and he actually abandoned her and she was pregnant and all this is true. So I like to write stories about women that really struggled and showed their character through the whole thing. And so baby Doe did, uh, ran this mine alone and then she moved to Leadville, Colorado, which was about a day away. And she met this old prospector. He was 50 years old. And here she was 25 by this time. And the cool thing about him is he had been trying his whole life. This is Horace Tabor. He'd been prospecting his whole life and never struck it rich until 50 years old. And he struck the biggest silver mine in the history of America. And he became the mayor and the governor and then a U.S. senator. Of course, he was married. And he and Baby Doe had an affair. And she's very religious, which you'll see in the, the book. And that was really tough for her. But somehow they just really loved each other. So they, got, they actually got married in the White House in uh, Washington, D.C., so at our, at our capital with the, the president in attendance. But their life was, uh, while they were the richest couple in the entire country, of course, they were scandalized and ostracized by society and by politicians, and she lived a very sad and lonely life as a very rich woman until... In 1896, I'm getting my dates right. So 1893, we had the silver crash and they actually demonetized silver. Remember silver dollars. I know you have different money down there, but we have silver dollars here in America and they were actually made from silver. And today, so this was in 18, in the 1893 those silver dollars actually were a dollar. Today, you can buy a silver dollar for $100. So silver has really gone up. But it, in those days, they demonetized it and the Tabers lost everything. And so it's the story of really rags to riches to rags and what happens to these two amazing Americans. Um, there are very there are similarities between Charmian and Baby Doe in, in the way that they both challenged the conventions of their day, is, uh, isn't there? There there are, but I think that um, what I'm getting from some of the people who have read both books 
is that Charmian London had a much tougher man to deal with in, in Jack London. Jack London, you know, was one of these superstar, like a genius and a superstar, and she really had to cater to him. And Baby Doe's, um, Horace Tabor is more of a, I guess he's a different man too. He's a gambler and he, he gambles everything on silver and he loses. So it is interesting how these two different women deal with these men and with themselves and how they come out in a heroic way. But the, I think the two books are really different how they end. Yes, yes. And Baby Doe, you do have a sequel for Baby Doe coming, don't you? Yes, I do. And it is called Silver Dollar. And this is crazy, but they named um, Baby Doe Tabor. That's a very different name. It comes from the miners um, nicknaming her after a baby deer. They thought she had the biggest eyes. And if you see pictures of her on Google, you'll see that she has these enormous eyes. And so they named her Baby Doe. Well, the Tabors then named their daughters the strangest, longest names. And one is named Silver Dollar. <laughs> and she's actually named Rosemary Echo Silver Dollar. And so the next, the next book, which I've already written, is um, about Baby Doe and Silver Dollar and how they go up to the matchless mine and they live there trying to get their fortune back and what happens with that. And with, just like with the London story, there are relics of Baby Doe Tabor's history. I mean, I was reading online just in the last couple of days about her wedding dress, which has been restored yeah. and is on show in Colorado somewhere. Tell us about that for readers who might be interested. Yeah, you can. If you um, Google Baby Doe Tabor's wedding dress, it does exist. And I've seen it at the Colorado History Museum. And it is exquisite. At the time, which was 1883, she got married. It cost $17,000 then in 1883. So I, I really can't even, I should figure out how much that is today, but it would be huge. It would be more like $70,000 today. So it was just beautiful. And she has a number of outfits that you can see online. And I will be speaking at the History Museum, which I'm really excited about, at the end of August. And they're going to bring out all the relics they have of the Tabers so that people who come to my presentation can see them firsthand. And one thing I want to add to this, one of my favorite relics of hers is the cover of Baby Doe, of this gold digger Baby Doe Tabor, because that is an actual painting of her done the year that she died. And she died in uh, 1935, so not that long ago. I guess it is, but... <laughs> And I just love that painting. And the story behind that is that this painter used to paint all the backdrops and the dioramas in the museums. And when she died, he painted this in tribute of the most beautiful woman in America at the time. Well, that's a gorgeous story, yes. 
and it would be wonderful to see those objects. So that, that'll be a lovely occasion for you in August. Oh, I am looking forward to it. Yeah. And I'm also, I'm also speaking at the Tabor Opera House in Leadville, and I'm thrilled about that as well. Oh, yeah. So how many people has Leadville got today? Is it, It's still more or less just a small town, is it? Leadville, okay, so when uh, Horace Tabor was first in Leadville and there was no gold found or anything. There were only 200 people there. It was just a mining camp. And then in five years, because of the gold rush, it got to 40,000 people, from 200 to 40,000 people, yeah. and he was the mayor. <laughs> so I can't imagine what that would be like to live in that kind of environment where it grows from 200 to 40,000. And now today, it is probably 2,000. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, and it's, what I love about Leadville, if anyone can ever go there, is it looks pretty much exactly like it did in 1880. Yes. I love that. Yes. It, yeah, it's, it still has the mine. It has the matchless mine. It has all the old houses that you can tour through where Horace Tabor lived. It has the Tabor Opera House. It has the um, Silver Dollar Saloon, which is fantastic with all the heads of animals and things. It's just really a wild mining town. Sounds a great place to visit. <laughs> it, very good place to visit. And you seem to have this gift for finding remarkable stories because I gather that you're, you're now working on another amazing story about the Champagne Widows of California. Tell us a little about that one. Well, actually, it is the Champagne Widows of Champagne, France. Oh, it's Champagne, France. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I love Champagne, and I have been to Champagne, France many times, and I discovered that there were five main widows back in the 18, in 1800. From 1800 to 1950, there are five main women who really made champagne the worldwide phenomenon that it is today. So that is going to be a series of five books. And I'm working right now on my third draft of the first one, which is Veuve Clicquot. Have you ever had Veuve Clicquot champagne? I think so. I certainly have heard of it. <laughs> Okay, so it's the one with the orange label, and Vouv actually means widow. So the, funny, the interesting thing about why these women were able to do, do something in the 1800s when no women worked at all is because they were widows, and there was a glitch in the law because if you were if you were married, then everything that you did and everything that that you owned belonged to your husband. And if you weren't married, it all belonged to your father. And they were in charge of you like you're not a person, like you're an animal or an object. So the only women who could really do anything were widows. And it's so wild that there were these five different widows throughout 150 years that really made Champagne amazing. Yeah, that sounds like a great story. I'm excited about that one too. Yeah. Look, t 
turning to your wider career, tell us something about your life before you became a writer. Uh, Well, I was in the lavender business, and that was actually the first book that I wrote was Lavender Fields of America, because we were the largest grower and manufacturer of lavender products in America. So we made it still online because we uh, sold the company. So you can look it up. It's called Sonoma Lavender. And so we grew the lavender and we made about 300 different products out of lavender from bath and body to sachets to pillows to little stuffed animals to the heated spa products like the neck pillows that you heat up in the microwave and wrap around for a great aromatherapy and heat therapy. And we loved that business. We did that for 20 years and then we just sold it right before the fire. So it was a big, crazy year. We sold our business one month, like September. The fire was October. And so it's been a wild ride. It certainly has. Look, just um, reverting back for a moment to your mention of the friend that you started writing with, did she continue with her writing? No, and I love her story. Someday I'll convince her to keep going. She wrote the book, and it's a great book, but um, she too, she also had her house burned and everything, so she did not continue with that. Yeah. I'll tell her that you asked about it, though. <laughs> It would be amazing if you both end up being published. Um, yeah. It would. It would. <laughs> so do you have a particular writing routine that you follow? I, I imagine that at the moment with your life a bit in upheaval, it might be hard to maintain a routine. No, that's what keeps me sane, really. I write in the morning right away when I get up, and that is early, like 5 o'clock. And I like to uh, light a candle and start writing because it's quiet and there aren't distractions and you can get right into the next scene. I write by scene, you know, so I'll just imagine um, what is happening in that scene. In the book that I'm writing now, which is The Champagne Widows, she actually, Booth Clicquot actually knew Napoleon. This is during Napoleon times. And so it's really fantastic to have Napoleon as the little devil, she called him. And this is all true. So so you really just have that time early in the morning to get into that character. And I like to write a scene a day, which is something that Jack London always did. A scene is about a thousand words, and he always had a thousand words a day that he would try to write. Fantastic. Is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you credit with your success? Um, I think that, what do I credit with my success? I think that I am not afraid to try, you know, to try to write. A lot of people talk themselves out of writing their story because they think it'll be too hard. But if you just write it all down and not be too critical in the first draft, then you can go back in the second draft and get better and better and better. I would say that I end up with, honestly, 50 drafts of each book. Gosh. And the first one, you just get the story down quickly. So I think that my 
uh, ability not to be overly critical in the beginning and to let me let myself go back and back and just get it better and better and tell the story the way I want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a good way to turn off your internal editor with the first draft, isn't it? Yes, I, I have a lot of author friends and they get, you know, everyone is critical of their own work or they want to get it so perfect and they wordsmith it to death like the first draft. Mm -hmm. That means that you're never going to get that book done. Mm -hmm. The best way is to say, what is the story I'm trying to tell and get it down and then work on the structure of it. And then you go in and start working on the characters and the setting and everything else that you want to create in that book. Yeah, that's right. We're starting to come to the end of our time together. So turning to Rebecca as reader, this podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's predicated around the idea that people do like to binge read these days in much the same way that they binge watch Netflix. Are you a binge reader and what do you like to read? Oh, I my Kindle has so many titles on it that I can barely even look at them. <laughs> so I think I'm a binge selector. So because whenever whenever I'm on social media and someone tells me about a book, I will immediately download it. And then I got the Kindle Unlimited. So I just download everything that I want to so that I don't forget about it. You know, so I've got a lot of books. And what do I like to read? I because I'm writing historical fiction, I'm really focused on that. I like to read like the Lisa C books. Of course, like everybody, once you get some favorite authors, you like to read everything by them. I also like to see if authors change over time. And it seems like some of the historical fiction authors are getting like the really bestsellers are getting very detailed and rich in their writing as opposed to just just kind of surface um, historical fiction. So I like that where it's got a really beautiful story to it. Any of those that you can name that you that whose names come to mind? Let's see the the one I just read um, where the crawdads sing. Have you read that? No, I haven't. No. That's a great book and I've read a few of that kind of subject and that's about very poor children and parents and how they um, how they grow up and how they can survive that because there are a lot of issues with growing up poor and disenfranchised wherever you are. So I've read Where Crawdads Sing, which is really a bestseller, and I read Educated lately, which is this, the same kind of subject. So this, so I read Educated and where the crawdads sang, and also uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Have you heard of these titles? No, I haven't heard of Hillbilly Elegy. I had heard of the other two, but Hillbilly Elegy, no, is new to me. It's They're all the same subject, which I do a lot of volunteer work at our Valley of the Moon Children's Centre, and they are these kind of kids who have grown up with parents who are either uneducated or they um, maybe they get into drugs and the poor kids are there trying to learn how to deal with their lives. So I guess I get into a streak 
like that reading about yes. it. Did you ever read The Glass Castle? No. Okay, that's another really interesting one of the same ilk. We'll put links to those in the show notes for people who might like to follow up on them. So that's marvellous. Thank you. Looking back over your writing career, at this stage, if you were starting over again, would you make any changes or are you pretty much um, happy that it's gone the way you'd always wished it to go? Well, I think I wish I would have started earlier. (laughs) Yeah. Because I really enjoy it. But, you know, I've had... The lavender career was 20 years, and before that I was in marketing. So I've had a long and fun life. So now this is very exciting to be able to create these stories for people to read. And I really do love the way that the social networking of readers and authors is developing, just like your program here. That's so exciting, and it never existed before. And I have, I have a um, Facebook page that we run, which is American Historical Novels. And there's just so much interchanging. Like I had a hundred different people talking about Gold Digger last week. It was really fascinating. It's fun to have those relationships with the readers. Fantastic. We'll put that Facebook group onto the show notes as well. So what have you got planned for the rest of this year in terms of your writing? I I suppose it sounds like it might be your Verve Clicquot book that's going to be taking most of your time, but tell us about this year. So I'm in my third draft of Verve Clicquot, and then then I'm going to go over the silver dollar and do another draft of that, and I'm hoping to release that one next year. And we'll see, we'll see how I get with the um, Champagne Widows. It's really a lot to incorporate the French Revolution and Napoleon along with winemaking and what it's like to live as a widow during that time. So that may take me another year yet. And do you have to do some of your research in French? Is your French up to that? No, I, um, I do not know French. <laughs> so no but I I have visited there how many times maybe four times and of course I would always want to go back but when I go there and I did this with uh, Gold Digger as well I hire a historian to take me everywhere and to tell me everything um, so that I can really see it and feel it firsthand and get to ask my own questions because I find that the History books don't give you all the little things that you might want to know, you know, as a novelist. Yeah. So I love, I actually had the Bouclico historian um, for half a day when I was there last. And they gave me their personal number and their history books and everything. So I've got a lot to work with. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> Are you a writer? Yes, I I do historical mysteries myself, actually set in 1860s, 1870s California, so yeah. Oh, wow. We're going to have to have you on American historical novels. Oh, thank you. That's kind of you. Um, Do you enjoy interacting with your readers? I already know the answer to this question. And where can they find you online? Well, I have 
You can start with my website, which is RebeccaRosenberg.com. It has Rebecca-Rosenberg.com. And I have a great mailing list going on. I do a newsletter, say, once a month about interesting things that we're finding out with the different books that I'm writing. And then we have a face. I have a Facebook page, which is Rebecca Rosenberg Novelist. Or I'm sorry, Rebecca Rosenberg Novels. Novels, and, yeah. And yes, novels. That's the Facebook. And I also like to connect on BookBob seems to be a good place. And Goodreads, I'm involved with Goodreads as well. And then also this, as I said, the American Historical Novels. I'm the moderator of that uh, Facebook page. And I have another Facebook page. Which you, which I know you'll understand. It's called Breathless Bubbles and Books. So that there's the uh, champagne connections. Breathless yeah. Bubbles and Books on Facebook. That sounds wonderful. And also, we'll put the links to your your former lavender business. What a wonderful conglomeration of 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 cool <laughs> topics. <laughs> Great, I love it. Thanks, Rebecca. Look, it's we have now run out of time together, but. It's been marvellous talking to you. It really has. And I think people who are planning their next um, holiday would have some great ideas to follow up on from hearing you talk. Thank you, Jenny. It's been really fun. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both lighthearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, full details in the show notes on the website that's it for now thanks for listening hopefully see you next week bye